Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Two things that rarely happened in Formula One both occurred on the same day back in the summer of 1989. Firstly, a driver won from deep on the grid at the Hungara Ring of all places, and secondly, that victory was achieved with a rare on-track pass on Ayrton Senna in dramatic fashion. Drama tended to go hand in hand with Nigel Mansell though, so perhaps that was to be expected. And for a man famous for daring overtakes and exciting victories, there are very few performances even in the conversation to match what he pulled off in the 1989 Hungarian Grand Prix. Yet while things were looking so good for Mansell on track, off track he had no idea that the rumoured arrival of Alain Prost as his new teammate for the following season was going to upset his love affair with Ferrari that looked so strong at this point in 1989. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to look back at all of that and much, much more from the first year of the Bring Back V10s era, we have one of our go-to combinations, and that's Andrew Vanderberg and Sam Smith. Andy, this is your first appearance of the season, so you can have the opening question. When you think of the 1989 Hungarian Grand Prix, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, clearly it's uh, Nelson Piquet's heroic charge from 17th on the grid to a uh, fine sixth place. Uh, no, course. honestly, uh, when I saw this on the episode list, there's only one thing from that race that comes to mind, and that is Mansell's pass for the lead. Um, it's it's funny, isn't it, that Hungaro Ring, a track so famed for there being no overtaking in, in the first three years of its uh, being on the calendar had, had two absolutely iconic overtaking moves with and both of them on Senna uh, as well but no I, I I was honestly I was struggling to think of anything else that happened in that race uh, when I first looked at the, uh, the the fact that we were doing this episode yeah that kind of fits with uh, our audience memories that we'll come to in a moment uh, Sam we always like pairing you two up uh, usually for some of the older races but what stands out for you about this one is there anything else other than the overtake for the win well, uh, you know, I'd be completely agree with um, V2B in terms of Mansell's move. I mean, it was, I think, along with his move on Berger at the Peraltada, probably nine months later, it's it's right up there with some one of the best moves uh, in F1 of that period. But I'm going to go for a slightly more left-field route and mention Alex Caffey's outrageous qualifying performance, which, unbeknown to us at the time, was probably his, his career zenith, wasn't it? And he actually held that position for a bit, so... In what was the first, I think the first real Dallara F1 car um, in terms of been entered as a, a Dallara chassis, because I think the year before it was it started out as a Formula Three thousand car. Um, it was quite a quite a feat to get that thing up to third position and and then actually star a little bit in the first four or five laps of the race. So honourable mention for the disco kid there, as he was known in the paddock, just because he occasionally frequented discos of the area. That's good. Ed Straw will be happy that uh, Kathy got a mention. Let's hear some memories for our audience as well. This could just be five minutes of me reading out people saying Mansell, Senna, Johansson uh, and Overtake in, in very, various combinations. But uh, na- we'll do a few of those at the beginning. So uh, Tom Arnold, Chris, 
David Handy, Julius, Chris Parrott and Michael Moyle were some of those who chose the overtake. Uh, Rich mentions Mansell running a customised front wing with a gurney flap attached for the race. Formula Plus, Matthew Ponto and Adrian King also mentioned Alex Caffey qualifying third on the grid. Rob Manfield and David Edwards remember this being the first race where turn three was altered at the Hungaroring to speed the track up a bit, believe it or not. We will talk about that later. Philip Eitzinger says this was the only race in 1989 where Senna was beaten in a straight fight. And Paul Lucas calls it a compelling race to watch with great racing at the front. Not a given in 1989, despite the great storylines that season produced. There's still time uh, to get your questions in for the end of the series where you can ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005. Submit them as always using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email them to BringBackV10s at the-race.com. Talking of Twitter, we'd love to have you join us in the Bring Back V10's Twitter community. Uh, check the link in the description of this episode and we'll, we'll see you over there. There's more than a thousand people in there now. Um, and since the series has started, we're getting a whole flock of people coming in every time a new episode is released. So, uh, yeah, come join us. And if you want to get early access to ad-free versions of the show, plus bonus content from Bring Back V10s and the race in general, then check out the Race Members Club. To find out more and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. Having yet again, for the 10th time this year in 10 races, Having failed to score a world championship point, and Mansell goes through. Oh, fantastic. Nigel Mansell, as he and Senna come up to pass the Onyx, takes the lead. Now, is he going to pull away? Mansell on his way to his second victory, and down to second place goes world champion Ayrton Senna. The big talking point in F1 in the summer of 1989 was the future of Alain Prost. Prost had announced at his home Grand Prix a few weeks earlier that he was leaving McLaren at the end of the year, and we've already covered that weekend in a previous episode, but he didn't have a 1990 drive lined up, so he was now on the market as a free agent. Speculation was increasing that Ferrari wanted Prost to partner Nigel Mansell, although Ferrari's public position was that it was looking for an Italian to fill Gerhard Berger's seat, with Berger being off to McLaren. Prost was keeping pretty tight-lipped, only saying that he was 100% sure he would be racing in 1990 and he needed to go somewhere that would keep him motivated and allow him to fight for the championship. He also said he wanted to stay in F1 amid rumours that he'd been offered a sports car deal by Mercedes. The French media reported that he was only interested in Ferrari, Williams or Benetton, which makes sense, and Prost told French newspaper L'Equipe that Williams-Renault was one of several possibilities that are available to me. However, at the same time, he denied having any contact with Ferrari at that stage. Renault made no secret of being keen to get France's top F1 driver on board, admitting it was waiting for a response from Prost on a Williams offer. Andy, based on what we'd seen up to this point in 1989, if Prost wanted to fight for the title in 1990, was Ferrari his only option? Had we seen enough yet from, from Williams and Renault for it to be obvious what that partnership was capable of? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. And obviously, you've got to put yourself in the context of uh, at the time rather than how things would end up panning out. Obviously, Williams had had that break with Honda, that sort of interim year in 89 and 88 with the Judd, where the chassis was clearly okay uh, when the power wasn't required. Um, but it hadn't, you know, there was nothing to suggest that it was going to be this uh, powerhouse that it went on to become. Whereas, Ferrari had been in the doldrums, really. They hadn't won anything since 83. But 
it, it felt like there was things were on the on the change there. You know, they were embracing driving forward the technology with the semi-automatic gearbox and everything. And of course, they did have the best resources. And uh, I found a extended highlights of the American coverage uh, of this race, uh, which I watched uh, as part of the preparation for this. And there's a quote in it where Ron Dennis says the only team that could potentially challenge McLaren and Honda's dominance at that time would be Ferrari because of the resources that the Fiat group were given them at the time. And I think while history doesn't bear the decision out, it was the logical move for him to make at the time. Certainly way more logical than going to Benetton. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, Once we got into the hungry weekend, the Prost Ferrari rumours only increased and Mansell, the team's lead driver, seemed relatively on board with the idea. Mansell said, if it's Ferrari's wish to get Alain into the team, then I'll support it. There'd be a lot of pluses and probably a few minuses, but I wouldn't feel uncomfortable with that situation. Mansell admitted that Ferrari would have to undo a few things in his contract to allow Prost to come in, which is obviously Mansell's uh, number one status in the team, but he didn't expect that to be problematic. He praised Prost's ability plus his value as a test driver and he said between us we're probably two of the best in the pit lane for getting things done. He called Prost one of his few friends in F1 and said he was sure Prost would be above board in how he worked. We'll keep some of this stuff back for when we cover Prost actually signing for Ferrari which happened about a month later. But in Mansell's book, he expanded on these feelings, saying that when Ferrari asked if he'd be willing to renegotiate his deal to allow Prost to join, Mansell said, I wasn't enthusiastic about it, but I was open-minded. He also said that he was confident he could beat Prost, so he wasn't worried about him joining. Sam, we know this relationship would completely break down in 1990. In fact, it wouldn't take long at all. But was Madsell handling this in the right way when he first got word that Prost might be coming in? I think it was the last season where Mansell was reasonably not green because he'd been in F1 for for a number of years by this stage. But in, in the context of assuming that Prost would come in and there would be sweetness and light between the two, has elements of naivety uh, in it, I think. And I, I think in his head, in Nigel's head, he probably thought Alan would come in, be the harmonious teammate, and then you know, they'd both go hand in hand off to the golf course to play a few rounds. And that was never going to happen with two very different characters, fundamentally, anyway. Um, again, in hindsight, I think Nigel would have wanted to have been more powerful in the team by that stage, but I'm not sure he had the the aptitude to do that in the way that Senna or Prost or PK did to dominate a team. I think he he believed that his results and his occasional genius um, wins against odds and this whole philosophy that Mansell had that the world was against him would see him through and that naturally he'd be the, the top dog at the team. But I think when you look at Ferrari in the late 80s and the inevitable politics that swirled around that team there was much more to it than that it was a more complex place to be and to work I think clearly Mansell was never as calculating in in the kind of career chess moves and I think this is borne out in the comments that you've just read there Glenn I think there's a a slight naivety still there and it's a it's almost a romanticism isn't it that ultimately the warrior will 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 work the wonders and and that actually anyone else who might be politicking or building a, a, a stronger position in the team like Prost and, and Senna and, and PK did could be repelled at some in some ways. This kind of brawny romanticism that Mansell had 
was he just it was worn on his sleeve, wasn't it? And we all knew about it because he he never lost an opportunity to to um, play it out on the track. So it was only in 1990 that he really started to understand that this calculating method of making a team your own was coming into play. And I I think ultimately um, it dawned on him pretty quickly in, in, in 1990 that that's what Prost was doing. The rest of the driver market was in stasis while everyone waited to see what Prost was going to do. But there was more going on with the futures of various teams and engine manufacturers. One of the big stories here was the prospect of Porsche coming back to F1. Ulrich Betz, Porsche's general director of engineering, had confirmed it was building a 3.5 litre engine, which he said could be raced in F1 and the World Sports Car Championship. He said it would need to be for 1991 to give Porsche enough time and that a decision needed to be made very soon. But this wasn't going to be the usual kind of works engine project. Betts said, Porsche has a big interest in coming to F1, but it's not possible for us to finance a complete engine development and racing program. We are a highly exclusive company which produces only 30,000 cars a year, which is different to Honda, which is a very big company. He said it was not possible to finance these things alone, so Porsche would need to find partners willing to pay for it. Andy, we'll come to who was in the running team-wise, to potentially get this engine in a moment. But was this stance from Porsche a red flag right from the beginning? If it was any other manufacturer, then it probably would have been. But if you look at the the history they'd had recently when they'd built the turbo engine and it had been badged as a tag because that was where most of the funding had come to build the engine, it wasn't really against the grain of how they went motor racing at the time. Um, so... Obviously, we know how it all ultimately panned out, so it does sound like a red flag. But because it was Porsche, because the TAG project had worked so well, I don't think anyone would have gone, well, that's that's not the way you do it, but it's the way that Porsche would do it. So, no, I, I think maybe they would need to have looked at the drawings, and when they saw that they were building an engine for an aircraft carrier, they might have <laughs> realised that, that, that they were probably going down the wrong route. But it, in, as a philosophical decision, um, it didn't... It, it didn't it wasn't outside of how Porsche operated. So in that sense, it wasn't a red flag. Yeah, that's a good point. We're only two years removed here from that, from Porsche still having a race-winning engine in F1 under that model. Um, but Porsche said it will only come back to F1 if we find there is a package which gives us a competitive position. Bet said there were many teams interested initially, but now the field was being whittled down. Autosport reported at the time that the initial contenders were Lotus, Brabham, Onyx, Ligier and Arrows. There were also rumours that Porsche had tried to get Camel to fund the engine, but Camel's response was that it was in the cigarette business and was not about to start buying engines. Flamboyant Onyx owner Jean-Pierre Van Rossum then gave an interview where he said Onyx had landed a five-year deal with Porsche, but both the manufacturer and Onyx team boss Mike Earl denied that was true. Sam... Porsche said it wanted a competitive position. From the list of teams I just ran through there that they were talking to, were any of those capable of offering that? Not really, no. I think Arrows was the, the best bet, ultimately, and the best choice. I think um, Lotus and Ligier were, were kind of spent forces in Formula 1 by this time, as were Brabham, clearly. They had so many different uh, ownership issues, um, some of them extremely exciting, um, during that year with um, a Swiss businessmen uh, going missing and, and all kinds of knock-on effects from from that episode which i'm sure could be a, an episode of uh, bring back v10s at a later date one day at the opposite of the, the end of the spectrum you've got onyx which operationally and technically were, were good and had promise 
but quite clearly commercially and ownership wise we're, we're as mad as a box of frogs uh, and that's been kind um, Jackie Oliver he was hankering after a manufacturer deal that was clear and was still hungry to try and capture one um, he kind of got a breakthrough via footwork um, which had been doing Formula 3000 programs for the, the past couple of seasons and and were, were cash rich for for a small period of time in the late 80s and early 90s so uh, arrows really was the best option I, I tried to think through actually if lotus could be a viable option at that time and and, and possibly they 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 could have been um they 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 had some cash with the camel sponsorship although most of that was going on to um under under the line of Mr. PK's um, salary in the accounts department, I think. And ultimately, it probably, if, if Porsche would have hooked up with Lotus, it would have accelerated Lotus's demise, I think. I think, I'm not sure Lotus would have got through 1991 um, the way that they did, which was fitfully anyway. So, from a competitive standpoint, Arrows were off the back of two decent, well, pretty good street seasons in F1 in 88 and 89 with that, those Ross Braun cars. So you'd say that was the logical fit at the time, but certainly, you know, discounting the others um, was, uh, was 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 an optimal optimal decision, I think, especially, especially Onyx. One manufacturer that was already in F1 but was finding it tough going was Yamaha, which was having a disastrous first season with Zack Speed. Zack Speed only qualified for one race with one car all season up to this point. But in the summer of 1989, it said it was committed to Zack Speed and it believed it was laying foundations with its tough F1 baptism. Zack Speed were also hopeful that it would eventually get to benefit from Yamaha learning what it took to build a top F1 engine. However, there were rumours in the background by the this point that the team could be losing its sponsorship from West. Ultimately, this partnership didn't last beyond 1989, with Zack Speed losing all of its sponsorship after a horrid season and Yamaha bailing out to switch to the V12 engine it took to Brabham in 1991. Andy, was Zack Speed and Yamaha just in over their heads in 1989? I think uh, it was in the autocar season review special that they did in the but final spread was a picture of McLaren Honda and all of their employees would have been 250, 300 or whatever it was. And Zack Speed Yamaha with their 45. Because, you know, here are two race teams with Japanese engines and big tobacco sponsorship or whatever. But the, the difference between them was absolutely stark. And, you know, Zack Speed had been uh, a very competitive team uh, in touring cars and and, and other formula for for a decade or, or so but i never i never understood what yamaha had any business in being involved in in formula 1 so I've, i i thought i'd look into this and they only ever built the one car which i which i knew of which was that ox9911 weird three seat hypercar thing of which they made a, a handful of prototypes but never sold them and they've been making uh, car engines for manufacturers that were badged by other things as well so I still it doesn't make any sense why why they would be in Formula 1 and why they would be in Formula 1 you know all at a time when you know Honda and the other big manufacturer come in and spend in enormous amounts of money so yeah they were on a complete hide into nothing as you would have known from your DTM days Bert Schneider very very capable F1 driver and if he can only get it onto the grid once then there's clearly quite a lot missing there um I thought it was quite pretty though I like the look of the car and I thought the livery was was good and I always sort of wished them well because it was such a curio um but 
yeah, it was rubbish. And when they came back uh, with a V12, that wasn't any better either. So I had that randomly good year in the Tyrrell, but that, I'm digressing massively. Uh, what, what a pointless exercise. I mean, not quite as Subaru levels of pointlessness, but still doesn't make any sense. Moving on to a more established F1 manufacturer, Ford was putting pressure on Benetton. I feel like I say that a lot in Bring Back V10s, actually. Ford was putting pressure on Benetton to up its game as Ford's works team. Benetton was fourth in the Constructors' Championship behind McLaren, Williams and Ferrari, but Ford boss Mike Cranifer said Benetton wasn't convincing him it could win races. He said he'd made Ford's objectives clear to Benetton and interestingly he admitted that Ford didn't have any alternatives for a lead team because it wasn't going to be able to supply McLaren, Williams or even Ferrari but Cranifus felt Benetton is slightly below those top teams and any other alternative is certainly below what we have now. So he said the logical thing to do is to make this work. Sam, were Benetton underperforming at this stage in 1989? It's actually really hard to make a judgment on that. I think the temptation is to ponder that really probably, yes, they were for, for what they had in, in constituent parts. At this stage, they had half the points that reliability hit Ferrari had achieved and just six more than Arrows and seven more than Tyrrell. That's not a great look, I think, for what they had uh, at their disposal. The, the thing that I've never quite understood is... Their new car, the B189, didn't debut until Paul Ricard halfway through the season. Now, it wasn't unusual for new cars to come in two or three races into a season, but this one was half a season. I mean, is, is there any adequate explanation as to why that was the case? I've not, I've not found one. I mean, it's clearly a better car than the the 1988 car, and Nanini was able to grab some points with it, and, and Johnny Herbert too, um, before he was replaced by Pirro, um, also at Ricard. So. As it was halfway through the season, they had a paucity of results that they had. I think you have to say that there was a lot of underachieving going on. Frankly, it was no wonder that Ford were getting a bit twitchy. But as as we know, the relationship did um, did last and went on to achieve some incredible things together a few years. And perhaps actually this season was kind of vital for both um, Ford and Benetton to, to get their acts together and, and, and ultimately come under... Briatore's management and, and later with Walkinshaw and all the positive parts of the, the jigsaw which came together but yeah at, at this stage I mean it wasn't desperate but I think the feeling was that this uh, this was a team that, that should be achieving much more. Cranoff has also outlined his vision for how F1 teams would look in the future which was detailed in Autosport magazine, he said the level of sophistication was going to go beyond what a normal race team would be able to handle, so he felt all teams would need an external design department, citing John Barnard's GTO operation at Ferrari as the template. Cranifer said, I want to see an outside development design area that supplies a very small racing team with fully developed products which they assemble and race and test. Any major problems should be addressed by the design people and not affect the daily running of the team. Unsurprisingly, Ford initiated talks with Barnard about him setting up this sort of thing when his Ferrari contract ended later in 1989. Barnard said he wouldn't be looking to work directly for Benetton, but he was interested in having an independent setup which works for Benetton and Ford. Andy, we're nearly 35 years on and this vision for how F1 teams should be structured never caught on. Does that tell us it was a bad idea? 
I think it was a good idea for John Barnard. Um, it meant <laughs> he, he, he was able to work in in the way that he wanted to do without down the road the, from uh, his house. Exactly, down the road from his house without any uh, people from Fiat coming in and poking their nose around and telling him what to do. And I, I, I think it would be a very different F1 and and one that I'm not against actually if there were just a, a group of small racing teams. Um, you know, concentrating on doing the stuff on track and sort of subcontracting things out to uh, independent design offices like that. Um, I think it was on our, our F1 show where uh, Gary Anderson and Ed had, had been to the new um, Aston Martin thing and they had 200 uh, desks in the in the drawing office or whatever. It just goes to show the enormous size that um, Formula One design departments have morphed into now. But of course, the way the rules are and how absolutely vital the packaging of the powertrain and the chassis and how they work together means you need them all to be under one roof effectively in order for those, all those benefits to be you know, factored into the design of the car. Um, but that's looking at a, a 1989 proposal through uh, the lens of 2023. I, I would have been fascinated to see how that type of F1 uh, could have worked because I think you know there would have been much more pure racing uh, if that if you were just subcontracting little bits and pieces out like that and you could have run with a team of 40 50 people rather than needing a thousand and the budgets would all be completely different and well, a, a very different world that we would be in but i can understand especially seeing how formula one exploded in growth and the amount of money that was in there in the 90s why that model wasn't really uh, a bit more successful at the other end of Ford's F1 business, it was coming under pressure from some of its customer teams to supply a higher spec of V8 engine via Cosworth. The teams leading this push were Arrows, Brabham and Tyrrell, who all wanted an updated engine to be made available. Cranifer said he sympathised with those teams and he was working on it, but he said he would need, still need, it would still need to be a spec engine because all of Ford's development work had to be focused on Benetton. And he was worried about promising a better engine to the customer teams, only to then rush out an engine that wasn't reliable enough. Sam, in Hungary... Uh, 20 of the 39 cars entered were running the Ford DFR engine. At the beginning of what we call the V10 era, how important was that V8 engine to sustaining so much of the grid? Well, it was absolutely vital, especially from the commercial standpoint, because the earlier DFZ could be updated for half of the asking price of a DFR. So that was about 24 grand that these teams were able to, to get a... Uh, to get a V8 ready to go engine to go F1 racing and uh, and an, essentially 20 cars an entire grid pretty much of today's grids uh, out there extraordinary times I think the DFR was outstripping demand to, to the smaller teams um, so the smaller teams had little choice other than to go for these cheaper update kits so that's where you got all these great engine tuners builders whatever you want to call them of the time Heine Madder Brian Hart of course who who was a bit more than an engine tuner of course and and Langford and Peck the long forgotten Dick Langford's um uh operation which I knew well from the A1 GP days the early A1 GP days so you know servicing these engines for customers like Onyx and Arrows and, and Tyrrell Scuderia Italia a seller um who else was the real um i guess without them there simply wouldn't have been provision to go racing and get this this mad hot house of pre-qualifying this boom in 89 90 and and into the early 90s and frankly that would have 
change the complexion of the Formula One grid at, at this period, and and obviously also denied Ed Straw seven hundred thousand niche conversation threads as well for these kind of podcasts. So we've got a lot to be thankful for 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 those uh, engine tuners and and Cosworth at that time. But how wonderful it was that we had this um, this the, the, these teams that. Okay, majority of them were not competitive, but but some of them were, and some of the extraordinary achievements that they went through from half past seven on a Friday morning. I know this has been covered before in other episodes, but just these great storylines of scrabbling through at half seven, eight o'clock on a on a wet uh, Friday morning, and then all of a sudden been on the fourth or fifth row of the grid, or in Alex Caffey's case, been uh, been third on the grid in Hungary. Uh, yeah, great storylines, and of course, ones that will never be repeated in F1. Yeah, with, without them, we don't have free qualifying, so that's enough reason to be grateful for those engines. Uh, let's go back to Benetton and uh, something Sam hinted at already because in the run-up to the Hungarian GP, there were rumours that team manager Peter Collins was about to leave his position and this was confirmed after the race weekend. Collins spoke about the end of his time at Benetton in good detail on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast uh, and he said his departure had been brewing since late 1988 when, as Sam mentioned, Flavio Briatore was brought in. Collins said that when the Benetton family first told him they wanted an Italian presence in the team and that Briatore would report back to them, Collins said no. And his logic was that if they wanted Flavio in there, then they didn't need him. Uh, he said things went quiet for a few months after that frosty meeting. But then he was visited by Benetton's lawyer, who reminded him that he was an employee, so he couldn't really say no uh, to the wishes of the owners. Flavio was then installed in a marketing position, but Collins said, I knew what that meant. So at that point, I'd already decided that if he started to really politic, then this wasn't my future. And that's exactly what happened. Andy, do you think Collins was right to think he was fighting a losing battle once Briatore arrived on the Benetton horizon? Well, Peter's a shrewd guy, and uh, I think he he read the situation uh, very clearly, and uh, probably did absolutely what was best for him. Uh, I remember at the time when Benetton brought a, brought Flavio in, the the sort of F one press at the time didn't didn't really know what to make of him. Thought he was a bit of a joke, you know. This this guy with no motor racing experience coming in and being given all this power and responsibility at a team what could he possibly know etc whereas a guy like Peter Collins salt of the earth a racer like the rest of us would obviously um you know be the be the right type that you would want to take it forward um but he clearly had absolutely assessed the power and influence that Flavio would have with the Benetton family and that that was a, a fight that was effectively unwinnable um and i i think he he timed it perfectly it probably you know was the best thing for both parties ultimately um i wish he'd had a little bit more success at, at lotus but we've covered that in, a, in other discussions haven't we um but the, the right move that probably didn't work out for the right reasons and Sam, you've you've briefly mentioned this already, but given everything we outlined earlier about how Benetton was perhaps struggling and Ford wasn't happy, given what happens over the years that follows, and this culminates in, in Benetton winning championships a few years later under Flavio, was this actually a masterstroke from the Benetton family? It shouldn't have worked at all, should it? I mean, some a flamboyant um, clothing retail advertising marketing guy coming in and 
doing what he did over a certain amount of time, it, it, it shouldn't have worked. And I don't think there was any grand... I'm not sure there was a grand design over it happening that way. I think it was the Benetton family just grabbing one of their stars from their their industry that they knew and plugging him into Formula One. And I think the best thing that Briatore did was not to change his style or the way he operated to stay true to what he did in another industry um, and not conform in a way to to what what Andy described as a as a sort of pure racing person or pretend to be one there's been those those are two a penny in racing of that era who came in and got found out pretty quickly and didn't have the authenticity of of their their original character which whether you like Briatore or not he, he didn't change did he he didn't um he didn't mold himself to anything that he wasn't during his time in formula 1 but i think the bigger question here is about non-racing people coming into the sport and and why it happens um, or, or why the ones who make a success are quite rare. You know, you could you could stake a claim, couldn't you, to say that Toto Wolff is one of the most successful examples of that? Because you know, he although he did race himself um, at a, a sort of semi-pro level, he wasn't imbued in the industry, um, but imbued himself into the industry. And I think that's where you get success. That's what breeds success in in Formula One at that level. Briatore was a personality who fitted exactly into the Benetton image, I think, and that and that I think gave him a leg up and proved to be um, a big marker as to the how successful he and the team would become in the future. But I think a masterstroke would be stretching it too far. I'm not saying it was complete chance and luck, but I think um, it took certainly a couple of years. It was a fraught 89 for Briatore, and it wasn't really until he secured Barnard at the end of that season and then um, got this uh, team together properly that, that he was taken for anything, uh, for any credibility, really. But it, it came slowly. It wasn't an overnight thing. It's a good point that he uh, he didn't pretend to know the stuff that he didn't know um, and got got the right people around him but wasn't afraid to ruffle some feathers in F1, uh, probably as Peter Collins found out. Um, while Collins was on his way out of Benetton, the driver he'd fought so hard to give a chance to, Johnny Herbert, was about to get back off the F1 sidelines after being benched by Benetton a few races earlier. Herbert was still doing some testing for Benetton over the summer, but he would get back onto the grid at the next race at Spa after Tyrrell approached Benetton about using him as a stand-in when Jean Alesi had clashing commitments in F3000. Herbert was feeling good about his recovery from the injuries he'd sustained in his 1988 F3000 crash. And at the recent at a recent Benetton test at Pembury, he'd just started being able to break using the ball of his foot for the first time since the accident. Johnny said in his book that he jumped at the chance when the Tyrrell offer came in, but he admitted that really it was ridiculous to interrupt his longer term recovery by rushing back to racing. Herbert wrote, what I should have done was politely refuse the offer, keep my head down and carry on working. But I don't think you'll find a racing driver anywhere on earth who would have done that. Andy, given that Herbert had only managed six races before getting dropped by Benetton, would it have been a risk for him to pass up a chance to get back into the into the fray? Oh, I've got so much sympathy for Herbert over this period of time. And I think any option that came his way... How, how could he not possibly grasp it? There was no guarantee that he would ever get a, a slot back on the grid 
uh, after being dropped by, by Benetton at that time. And, you know, he, he had to prove to the world that he had fully recovered from those injuries. And whether it was a stage too soon or not, he couldn't be sure of when the next opportunity was going to come up. And that Tyrrell was a half-decent car, as we'd seen, you know, a Lacey put it uh, in the top half of the grid more often than not. Um, so taking that opportunity to show what he could do with it was it was probably the wrong thing for his health well-being and recovery but it was almost certainly the right thing for his racing career and and keeping his name in the lights and you know as we mentioned earlier there were that many cars on the grid there were also a whole host of young up-and-coming chargers seemingly way more than there are now a few with a small enough budget that you needed to get on the grid at that time there was no guarantee that the opportunity would come round again so um i can absolutely see why that was a risk he felt he had to take Looking further afield, uh, the leading drivers in kart in America were responding to claims from Bernie Eccleston that they wouldn't even be able to pre-qualify for a Grand Prix if they came over, and Bernie said he was willing to bet a million dollars on it. The IndyCar stars were certainly up for taking that bet, led by former F1 world champions Emerson Fittipaldi and Mario Andretti. Emo said he reckoned he could run at the front in F1 with some proper testing and a top car, while uh, Mario said he hadn't forgotten anything about driving an F1 car. Michael Andretti said, give me a McLaren and I'll pre-qualify at any race. And Alantza Jr. said uh, he'd give it a shot for a million dollars. Bobby Rahal said Bernie's comments were laughable, adding, obviously he's had his cage rattled by Kart's success. He must be more afraid of us than I thought. Andy, is that what was going on here? Do you think Kart was, was, was homing into view on Bernie's radar uh, by the end of the 1980s as a bit of a threat. So I was very lucky uh, living in the southwest as I did that we were one of the first areas in the UK where cable TV uh, was installed. And that meant um, we had access to Eurosport and Screen Sport, uh, which has meant I could watch kart races uh, in the evening from random broken up street tracks and aeroplane uh, air, airfield <laughs> races and all this stuff and it was in that sort of weird grainy way that the american tv pictures used to come in in those days so it it, it looks like the other worldy and it was brilliant i loved watching uh all of that and it might have been uh incredibly popular in the u.s at the time and it was on a, a in a in a good phase but it wasn't exactly a global threat to F1. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, where where the idea of, of, of that came from. And it's just such a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, could they all pre-qualify Eurobrun? No, of course they couldn't. Nobody could. And Senna couldn't have got a Eurobrun into a, into a Grand Prix in, in 1989. Could they have pre-qualified a McLaren? Every single one of those people whose name is on there would have easily pre-qualified a McLaren and would probably have qualified in the top eight uh, on the grid. Um, I, it's... Uh, Bernie's love him for coming up with these nonsensical things that somehow he's working on some other agenda. But on this case, I really do not know what other agenda he's working on there. It's just nonsense. Another story with a F1 and IndyCar crossover were reports that chassis manufacturer Reynard was conducting design studies for both series. Adrian Reynard's position was that the company would need a big sponsor or a manufacturer with an engine and support to do F1. Reynard's managing director Rick Gorn said they were approached three or four times a year about F1 projects, but the right opportunity hadn't come along yet. Sam, we know that a couple of years on from this, there would be a Reynard F1 design that didn't go anywhere, although it ended up being the Pacific. Um, and by the end of the 90s, they were in F1 as a founding partner of BAR. Do you think it was inevitable that 
Reynard would have a go at F1 at some point. Yes, absolutely. Um, even in the late 80s with, with the economic boom and Reynard winning Queen's Industry Awards and not dominating Formula 3000, but, but winning several championships uh, in that category, it was always natural that they would go to F1. I, I actually spent, I know Rick gone quite well, actually, and, and spent some time working with him. Ironically, at Lola, after Reynard finished, not many people realised that he was a consultant for Lola for a couple of years, and I shared an office with Rick. And even then, there was a driving ambition w- with him, and that combined with Adrian Reynard's technical vision and the way that he wanted to expand his company. They were always going to uh, get into Formula One, and it seemed around eighty nine ninety that they would they that they were going to do that, and ultimately they kind of did, but not in the fashion that um, that they designed or or wanted to push the company into f1 and then by that time of course the there was a recession coming on in in sort of late 91 i think early 92 which affected the industry as a whole so it was an itch that needed to be scratched for reynard and i think they were always going to to do it it was just the conditions had to be right it looked as though in 89 that 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 would have happened um i actually always wondered and and sort of need to ask Gary Anderson at at some stage. Gary was working for for Reynard in 1989 before he joined Eddie Jordan Racing and I I just wondered what discussions may have taken place between Reynard and and Eddie Jordan potentially because that just seemed like a natural fit didn't it? They were geographically close, they knew each other intimately from Formula 3000, Johnny Herbert won um, Reynard's first Formula 3000 race in, in the spring of 88. And I, I always wondered whether that would have been a good launch point potentially for for a Reynard-Jordan alliance. But yeah, they, they, Reynard were, were too good not to uh, look at Formula 1 seriously and, and try and get a rung on the ladder. Let's get into the track action then. And the first thing we have to talk about, uh, as we mentioned briefly at the start of the show, is a a change to the track layout. This was the fourth Hungarian Grand Prix, and it had been decided to open up the first section of the track by doing away with one of the switchbacks, which made turn three a fast right-hander onto a straight rather than a tight corner that took you into another slow left-hander. It really was a a bit ridiculous. Um... Andy, would would you say that uh, this was a good change to remove one of the twists from one of F1's twistiest tracks? Well, the best time to have made this change was when they were doing the original track drawings. Uh, the next best time would have been when they were actually building the track. But I'll go with the third <laughs> best time uh, ahead of this race in 89. Yeah, I mean... It was always criticised as being a, a go-kart track, and that was just a completely unnecessary uh, addition of, of, of another slow switchback corner, as you say. Um, so, yeah, the right thing to do at the right time. It didn't really uh, help improve overtaking there, but that's just, uh, I mean, it, it is what it is, right? Um, given the confines of the sort of bowl that it's built in, um, I guess they felt like they had to try and get as much track as they could, but that was easily a corner too far. And without that change, we wouldn't have got the uh, the famous overtake that effectively this whole episode is based on. Um, things were shaken up in qualifying with several teams struggling on the dusty, low-grip surface. 
Ricardo Patrese's Williams broke a 17-race pole position streak for McLaren, and this was Patrese's first pole since 1983, and it took everything Ayrton Senna had to demote the Scuderia Italia Dallara of Alex Caffey from the front row of the grid. So it wasn't like Caffey suddenly lucked his way up to third at the end. He was on the front row until Senna pulled something out of the bag. Prost was only fifth in the second McLaren, while Nigel Mansell was down in 12th, having given up on trying to get his car working on qualifying tyres and focusing on race setup instead. McLaren was struggling for once, with Prost calling qualifying impossible as the team struggled to find a good balance. Sam, how refreshing was it to see a mixed up grid and for once we had McLaren on the back foot by their usual standards? Oh, great relief. I mean, by that stage of the late 80s, McLaren was an all-consuming winning machine that, and anything other than a Woking 1-2, well, it just felt like Christmas had come all at once, really. I mean, lots of, there's lots of nostalgia-affected views of these times. You know, I'm I'm guilty of it, just as Rita B is, and all, we all are, but God, the races could quite often be very dull. I remember Monaco that year was so dull and featureless that even James Hunt's legendary René Arnoux bullshit rant was was about the only thing that broke that that boredom of that race um it's probably the only thing that it's remembered for monaco 89 so to have alex caffey third on the grid and holding that position for a few laps and then having ferrari or one of the ferrari so far back just felt yeah incredibly refreshing and and quite exciting actually uh modena eighth martini tenth um, even in battle, Piercarlo Ginzani making the cut in 22nd in that that Acela, which looked as though it had been designed on an Etch-a-Sketch or something. I mean, you know, these were these were heady times in this period because you were so used to a McLaren 1-2 grid lockout and, and then Senna or Prost just winning at a counter. For McLaren, I think it was, it was a shock, obviously. It was interesting to see them scrabble around a bit it didn't last too long did it because in Spa and Monza a few weeks later they they dominated all over again so the great thing about 89 actually in the in the evaluation of the season is is that occasionally we had these really great lucky dip races in a way I mean Montreal was one Australia was one this was one um clearly that's something we didn't get the year before in 88 when McLaren dominated so yeah it was incredibly refreshing and yeah well we're still talking about it what 34 years later aren't we so it must have been uh, it must have been fun Caffey didn't even pre-qualify at the previous race that's how much of a of a swing this was but it's why it's why I love this era because you think random things like that did happen and it's also why I love tyre wars because you do get the 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 order being shaken up now it it might be a false representation of the car's ultimate pace but I genuinely don't care right if it if it means I get you know Caffey and a a Dallara third on the grid and and Ginza in an Ocella making it onto the grid well actually he might have been on good years and anyway but that that's the sort of randomness that I want to see in motorsport I I, whether it's artificial or not I genuinely don't care you know it, it, it so long as it's unpredictable that's what matters yeah, I'd say it's not artificial because Pirelli were playing to the same rules as Goodyear. They could just they could only do qualifying tyres and they were particularly good on, on low grip surfaces. So they, they didn't have a leg up. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a good point, actually. Pirelli deserve a mention that they were almost entirely responsible for that for that grid position. And we must say Caffey clearly did a did a good job. Otherwise, uh, the whole top half of the grid would have been full of Pirelli shod cars. But uh, what amusing incident. 
uh, from qualifying involves John Alacy and Nigel Mansell falling out. Alacy felt Mansell had balked him by not moving over after completing a flying lap. So on their way back to the pits, he overtook the Ferrari, then brake tested it in the pit lane entry and drove deliberately slowly down the pit lane. Mansell bemoaned some of the new drivers coming into F1 for having no respect, saying that he respected the established drivers when he came in and he treated them like heroes. Alacy said he didn't understand what Mansell was doing and that it was not normal to stay in the way after completing a flying lap. Alacy admitted to being angry, but when Ken Tyrrell told him to apologise to Mansell, Alacy refused. Um, Mansell had been willing to let the matter go if he'd got that apology, but when he learned that Alacy wouldn't be saying sorry, he raised it with the governing body FISA, who weren't particularly interested. Amusingly, I recently interviewed uh, former Tyrrell designer Jean-Claude Migio for the Race Members Club feed, and while we were discussing Alacy, he brought up this clash unprompted. So let's hear what he remembers of it. I remember Hungary. That was 89, yeah, Hungary. Nigel Mansell in the yes. Ferrari. Yeah. You know that one? Yeah, in qualifying, I think, or practice. And uh, somehow Nigel... No, it was in the morning. Yeah. But, uh, okay, there was some qualifying lap and somehow Nigel spoiled Jean's lap. Probably unwillingly, but, you know, this is the young chap who didn't pay attention. Next run, Jean come in, he saw Nigel behind and he just put first gear. Pop, 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 pop. All the big lane and Nigel behind, <laughs> waving and shouting. And so immediately went out of this car, came to Ken. I said, you have to t tell your driver you never do that. And um, I can see again Ken coming to Jean sit on the on the bench, you know, the tool bench for the mechanics. And Ken is two ends of the wall. Jean, the minute, you have to go and um, make apologize to Nigel and Jean. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, they stay like that for ten minutes. And, and I think on this one, Kev had to give up because. No way Jean would have. And the great thing is they became great mates, Jean and uh, Nigel. But the first contact was uh, electric. Andy, this was only Alacy's fourth F1 race. Was he being out of line here? I'm not sure out of line. Certainly a bit naive. Um, I, I'll, give, I'll give him the credit for that. I, I think he should have had an expectation that Mansell might have moved out of the way after he completed his qualifying lap, though. I mean, that's just common track courtesy then, and it, and it wasn't something that was uncommon. Most of the drivers did do it, especially when we had these... They weren't exact, They weren't qualifying tyres as they had been in the early 80s, but they were really only good for one lap. So once you'd crossed the line, you, you knew you were going to have to get out of the way. Um, but a lacy sort of brake testing him or, or whatever afterwards, I mean, that is just... Um, it is out of order, uh, quite funny, uh, and a real window into uh, the character of Jean Lacy that we would see uh, blossom and develop over the remaining what, decade or more of, of his career. But uh, I think in this instance, he was probably just being a bit naive. I quite like the fact he didn't want to go and apologise. Uh, I think, you know, I, and I can see why Mance was really put out by that because he's quite right. The the younger drivers really did defer to the elder statesman when he came in. I think was was Mario his, his, his teammate then. So he would have been sort of schooled in how, you know, the, the right way to uh, to, to come in and, and uh, present yourself and to see a Lacey really not give... Uh, 
not give a damn about doing that would have definitely upset him a little bit but i'm thinking i'm on thesis side i just wouldn't have cared um so yeah but I, to be honest with you until until amigio had said this i'd completely forgotten about this i really one of those sort of weird footnotes in time We'll come back to Mansell shortly, but for the first 50 laps of the race, Patrese was controlling things from pole position. However, his race only lasted a few more laps after that as he'd hold a radiator. And after he radioed his team saying his temperatures were going up, before they could reply, he knew his day was done. Patrese said he couldn't believe it after so much effort had gone into leading the race and keeping Senna at bay. And he said he was happy and confident out front until he noticed the temperatures climbing. Sam, without that hold radiator, do you think, in fact, we were going to get the 1990 race a year early with a Williams holding Senna back from lights to flag as Thierry Bootsen did the following year? I think so, yeah. I I mean, he didn't look absolutely comfortable at all stages of those first 52 laps. But, you know, if if you're holding Senna off... Um, over that duration of a race, then you've done the hard yards. And as we saw after Patrese retired, Senna's pace was managed, wasn't it? Um, I think they were probably worried about fuel at that stage. So Patrese, I I can't see Patrese losing that race unless Mansell would have um, harried him into a mistake had he got past... um, Senna. So, yeah, I, I think Ricardo was in the box seat here, and yeah, the fact that he was so emotional, I, I reread the auto course account of it, and, and apparently he was in tears afterwards, and you can understand that because he'd done everything right. He got pole, he'd led, he'd soaked up the pressure. Um, as far as I know, he managed his his tyres pretty well. Uh, Senna looks occasionally threatening, but as we saw, as I mentioned, the pace didn't seem to be there with what Senna had that day. By 89, Patrese was a driver who could occasionally be dangerous but had shown real no, no real signs to up to that point of 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 dominating a race weekend like he had done at Hungara Ring um but then the the old flashes became pretty evident didn't they and, and then they were taken into 90 and 91 where he had where he had pretty strong seasons and, and won won some Grand Prix so yeah this was maybe the kind of the what would it be by then probably the third or fourth rebirth of Patrese's career which had started all the way back in 1977 but he you know let's let's face it let's let's face reality Patrese was never an absolute top liner in Formula One but days like this um, he was tough to beat and he was tough to beat by the best so yeah must have been extremely frustrating for him not to uh add this one onto his handful of grand prix wins uh the other thing i wanted to mention just because it's not anywhere else in the scripts it's just re-watching the race there's a bit where they come up to lap alboreto who does his best to massively get out of the way and then does his best to massively get in the way and almost <laughs> completely takes senna out uh, and he ends up like having at least two wheels if not three wheels on the on the dirt and he does incredibly well to keep who would have been behind him burger i no prost to keep prost behind him um at, at that point but yeah you were absolutely right patrese had that one in the bag but i just wanted to drop that one in because it was such a a random moment i completely forgotten of alberto doing his best and then really doing his worst it was hilarious <laughs> 1989 not not a banner year in michele alberto's f1 career uh, let's go on to Mansell's race then. So after qualifying 12th, 
having run on race tyres and half and full tanks to set himself up for Sunday. Mansell said there were some rather heated words with some of the management because Gerhard Berger had managed to get the other Ferrari up to sixth on the grid. But on race morning, with a gurney flap added to his front wing to get more front-end downforce, Mansell was fastest in the warm-up and he wrote in his mid-90s autobiography, I have to specify that because I think he's done three, Um, that he'd never been more psyched up for the start of a race. Mansell said, I felt that a win was possible, but I would need to be supremely aggressive on the first lap if I was to stand any chance. And he made it count going around the outside at turn one and gaining four places at the start. Uh, Satisfied with that, he then said he had to be patient and choose my moment carefully to pick off the others. And getting from eighth to first wasn't going to be an easy task at the Hungaro ring. But without making up that ground at the start, would Mansell have had any hope of pulling off this victory? Yes, yeah, an interesting question. I mean, obviously things were way different then in the amount of unreliability there was and the number of cars that would, would drop off. But I do think you're right that it's absolutely key that he got a, quite a lot of that um, work done in, in, in just one corner. Uh, and that... That and also aided by the fact that Caffey was a bit of a roadblock, so that bunched some of the other cars up in front of him, and that Patrese was controlling things probably in a way, as uh, Sam mentioned in his previous answer, on tyres and fuel. So that meant that the the pace of the race at the front wasn't that extreme, and so the fact that he'd made those four places up right at the start actually put him in pretty good stead. But it's still incredibly optimistic of him to think he could win a race from there given the Ferrari reliability of that season. When Berger pulls off, you know, that apparently that was his tenth straight retirement. Um so I don't know that Mansell's chances of actually getting to the flag at the start of the race were pretty slim, let alone uh, recovering from twelfth to to first. But he had been quickest in the warm up. Oh the warm up to remember that. Uh and uh, he, he obviously knew he had a good car. Oh, was that the first time a gurney flap had been used in F1, Glenn? Or am I just uh, throwing you a Maybe on a front wing. Yeah. Maybe on a front wing. Um, but anyway, that, yeah, this miraculous invention of giving him uh, more uh, grip on the front end clearly worked because when he... When he was in clear air, he was absolutely flying. So I can I can understand his confidence, but he wouldn't have his odds would have been pretty long uh, given how hard it is to pass there. Yeah, the gurney flap came from uh, Mansell asked for more front wing on Saturday and John Barnard said, you're at the maximum. Um, so then they had to have a think overnight and uh, he, uh, Mansell, his engineer, came up with stick a, stick a little flap on the front wing. Um, Mansell felt uh, his only shot at winning the race was if he could go from start to finish without a tyre stop and he got some good news when teammate Berger pitted and the Goodyear technicians declared that the Ferraris had minimal tyre wear. Mansell picked off a couple of the cars on track and as others pitted, he made his way up to third by lap 41, passing Prost's struggling McLaren, I think Prost moaned about engine problems, uh, to run behind Patrese and Senna. That became second behind Senna when Patrese retired and Mansell still had 24 laps remaining to find a way past the McLaren and he was confident that he'd be able to do it. Nigel said in his book, I'd been in this situation with Senna before and I knew that he would make it extremely difficult for me to pass. There was no reason to do anything hasty. I was one of the very few drivers who ever put Senna under this kind of pressure and he didn't like it. He knew that I was the only one he couldn't out-psych and that I would fight him all the way. Sam, is Nigel tooting his own horn a bit there or is it fair to say he was one of Senna's toughest opponents like on track in wheel-to-wheel battle? Mansell talking himself up? Never. 
I mean, who'd have thought it, eh? Um, <laughs> I mean, toughest in terms of, I guess, on-track battles. I think that's that's quite accurate. Rattling Senna. Senna could be rattled. I think we could see that at times. And I think maybe this was one of those occasions. Um, I think when they were racing at close quarters, there was definitely more than a hint of the irresistible force and uh, immovable object about these two. He was possibly... Senna's most feared at that period of time in his career in terms of actually getting his elbows out and going going wheel to wheel but you know that there was a nice rivalry going on there with Senna but it wasn't it wasn't the Prost rivalry was it I mean pound for pound it was occasional flash points I mean Spa in 87 they collided at the back chicane the, the Fania chicane or Piff Paff or whatever they called it on one any given weekend but that didn't end well and then there was Estrell later in 89 also but I think overall let's not kid ourselves Alain Prost was and always will be Senna's true nemesis on, on pace and orchestrating races and winning races and, and going toe-to-toe for championships but but Mansell and Senna did have a genuine rivalry and it was it was a tasty one and more often than not it ended in in fireworks but I think for Nigel to suggest that Senna was was cowed by him I'm, I'm not sure I think occasionally that there was pressure and Senna was fallible to pressure I think people forget that often when they assess Senna's career but yeah I mean for, for us the, the the spectators and the viewers it was a it was always a great flashpoint to enjoy and um and this was another good one and you know the rare occasion that it ended up with both of them still on the black stuff this was uh this was a great moment to behold yeah, I think Senna Mansell was one of my favourite kind of on-track rivalries from this era. They just, they had so many iconic moments, and as you say, so many some collisions as well. But that just adds to the drama. So let's get to the decisive moment of the race. Then the uh, the Senna Mansell battle closed on the ailing onyx of Stefan Johansson, who just been into the pits to get a developing gearbox problem looked at, and uh, I think it's fair to say that problem was not fixed. Uh, Senna charged up behind Johansson into the new turn three. Um, the Onyx jumped out of gear. Senna was forced to lift as he pulled out to pass Johansson, but behind them, Mansell had the perfect run and swooped past both of them to take the lead. Mansell said it was the sort of move you cannot plan and that it relied purely on instinct. He also said that if he'd not been so close behind Senna, he wouldn't have been able to jump the McLaren. Mansell said the secret was that I was right there and forced him into making a split-second misjudgment. And when you're fighting against people like Senna, that's the most you are ever likely to to get. Mansell called this his best overtake, saying it was better than Silverstone 87 on Nelson Piquet or Mexico 90 on Berger or any of his passes in IndyCar. Senna was philosophical afterwards. He declined the chance in the press conference to blame Johansson and he said Mansell deserved to win. But he said the end of the race would have been a lot more exciting if Mansell hadn't passed him then because it would have been a battle all the way to the end. Andy, you're not always the biggest Nigel Mansell admirer. I don't think we're quite at Matt Beer levels, but uh, what did you think of the overtake? Was it as good as Mansell says it is? It's tempting to be iconoclastic here and go, oh, well, Johansson had balked Senna and he had to ease right <laughs> off. And, you know, all he really did was just drive around him. But no, it's mega, right? The speed at which it all happens, the, the reactions that are needed there, the fact that it was Senna at that period of time and the way that it led, it, it is one of those all-time great Formula One moves. And whether you're a Mansell fan or not, it, it, you just have to enjoy it. It's like one of those things I can watch over and over again and still say, 
flavour the whole thing. It's just, you know, Senna's obviously taken completely by surprise when the, uh, the Onyx jumps out of gear. And it, it's amazing how slow it's going, right? It's, it's, it's barely crawling along. And he's just that split second hesitation that he has before he decides what to do. Mansell's just gone. You know, the, the, there's no hint of him doing anything other than swooping around. And it gives Senna plenty of room, right? He's about as far over to the right of the track as it's possible to go without... And men, you might say in typically theatrical Mansell fashion, you know. He's, yeah, maybe. He's, he's, probably, he's overblown the amount he's had to sweep around it. But that doesn't take away from the the, the thrill and the excitement. And, and like I say, the fact this was for the win, um, personally... If I was listing my great Mansell overtakes, I would do the burger move first. But, uh, but in terms of uh, what it meant to this race, and and I can understand why Nigel loves it so much. And I think the fact that it was on Senna really does probably for him mean that it means even more. Yeah, and I think there's something about three abreast overtakes that just look more dramatic. You know that that overtake would have been good if Senna had a problem and Mansell kind of sweeps around him. That's okay. But it's, it's the way they fan out and three cars side by side always looks fantastic. Uh, amazingly, Mansell charged away to win by 25 seconds after that. And he said that when he set the fastest lap after passing Senna, Senna lost interest and the fight seemed to go out of him. Mansell called it one of the most satisfying wins of his career and one of his best all-round performances. He said the race was on a par with uh, his Silverstone 87 win, although he rated the pass for the win in Hungary better because his tyre advantage over PK at Silverstone meant that move was inevitable and PK was never going to be able to resist him. Ferrari team boss Cesare Fiorio called Mansell's victory one of the greatest I have ever seen and said Mansell was one of Ferrari's greatest ever drivers. The performance earned a couple of lines of praise in John Barnard's book as well, with Barnard saying the pass on Senna was quite amazing and he added, for all of Nigel's melodramas, he was a big balls driver. When he needed to, he'd pick the car up by the scruff of the neck and wring a time out of it. Sam, we've already rated the pass for the win, but what about Mansell's race as a whole? It takes something pretty special to win any race from 12th on the grid, let alone at the Hungaro ring. Yeah, there was something about the Prosts in this victory, wasn't there, for Mansell? And, and that was quite rare. I mean, sort of polar opposite drivers in, in every way. But there were similarities in how Prost pulled off so many of his Grand Prix wins in the 80s in this fashion. Nigel had, had got Friday qualifying wrong, on the wrong way on setup, and then chosen to concentrate on race settings in Saturday practice, which is something we were so used to seeing Alain do in that period. So, so this was not in keeping with the classic Mansell myth of the belligerent, pushy win and, and all arms and elbows. This was well execu- executed, well excavated, polished victory by Nigel and and definitely one of his best. I mean, it was almost unheard of to make that kind of progress at Hungaroring in those days, but, but Mansell made it happen and he, he made a lovely move on Prost at the same point where he'd eventually make that uh, extraordinary move on, on Senna. And, and when you're building a race like this the momentum comes to you and Nigel just seemed to seem to harness that in a particularly positive way during that Sunday afternoon and and it was probably my favorite Mansell win you know I wasn't I was much more of the center persuasion as a fan in those days I, you know I did respect Nigel and I did enjoy his race wins as as, as many of us did as British racing fans but you know I his his personality was um 
was a bit of a detraction to me um, from what I saw. And But you have to say that when he was executing these races, it was just a thrill ride all the time. There was always some kind of drama. But on this occasion, it was tempered by a real calculation to what he did. And I think, in a sense, even more so than Silverstone in 87, because that was a, a certain amount of laps during the race where he, he made it happen, where, whereas this was kind of beautifully and intricately constructed. So the bigger question for me is actually why he doesn't get the same credit for this race that Prost got for Mexico City a year later, because they they were pretty similar. And in the sense that as well, the Hermanos Rodriguez was much easier to overtake than the Hungaro ring. Then, yeah, Mansell deserves all the credit that he that he gets for this kind of win. And I think it should be held up there as as one of the best of that era. Yeah, I'd agree with all of that. Uh, Mansell dedicated the win to Enzo Ferrari a year on from his death, then got a bit carried away with himself and said he still had a slim chance of winning the World Championship in 1989. He clarified this a little by saying 89 was always meant to be the foundation for an all-out attack next year, and that's how I think it'll go. But he also then pointed to Ferrari's tremendous progress and terrific motivation. Journalist David Tremaine wrote that these comments were calculated to inflame the passions of all Italian racegoers the world over. Andy, do you think that's all this was? Was Nigel maybe getting a bit ahead of himself, but also just playing to the gallery when he says things like that? Uh, I think DT has nailed it with his uh, <laughs> comment there. <laughs> I can I can understand though, you know, post race uh, the endorphins running through his body after a, a magnificent win by that. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, the reliability of the Ferrari at that stage and the usual performance of the McLaren Honda package meant that it was a it was a outside shot at the very very best um and hardly likely to ever really come off but I don't I don't blame him for saying it I can I can see why he got a little bit carried away with himself there but it was never a realistic shot even at a time when you know finishing races was much less likely than it is now um him overturning what was his deficit to Prost 22 points that's enormous right that's that's basically Prost not finishing three races in order for for that to happen was never never a realistic thing no, but I think uh, it probably put a few more Il Leone banners on the on the banks at Monza, didn't it, when they turned up there a month later? So yes, exactly. Job done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so we'll leave it there for Hungary 89 and our latest venture back to the first year of F1's V10 era. Thanks to Andy and Sam for jogging your memories back that far. And thanks to Nigel Mansell for doing something as ridiculous as winning from 12th on the grid at the Hungaro ring of all places. Talking of Mansell, next time out... Actually, this time I'm not going to give away what the next episode is because it's something a bit different and I'm very excited about it. If you can't stand the suspense and want to find out early, then by all means head to the-race.com forward slash members club and sign up to the members club to get early access to that episode. Otherwise, for once, you'll just have to wait and see where we're going next. The Athletic.